to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Down to verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. Now remember, they were still in Egypt, in slavery in Egypt. They, they must take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Verse 10, do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. God was preparing them to leave, leave Egypt. Eat it in haste, he said. It is the Lord's Passover. Father, this morning we pray that you would take your word and open it to our hearts. And this uh, amazing festival and feast and remembrance of Passover, uh, as we study it, as we get into the New Testament and, and what Jesus is doing with it and the meaning there, Father, I pray that you would let us be able to hear and understand what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, as we began Matthew chapter 26, we noted that, uh, that we've come to the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel being the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, the purpose of the life of Christ was his sacrificial death. He came into the world for the purpose of dying. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. We understand the concept of paying a ransom. There was no mistake made here. There was no plan B. There's no plan C. There was plan A and no other plan. And as we saw last week in Revelation chapter 13, 8, it tells us that Jesus is a lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. This is the plan from the very beginning. That's the reason Jesus came, to die for the sins of the world. As one uh, author uh, put it, the death of Jesus Christ is not the end of history. It is the theme of the story, beginning to end. And everything in the Old Testament moves up to the cross. The Gospels talk about the cross and focus on the cross. And the rest of the New Testament deals with the results of the cross. It's just kind of fascinating how, how that all takes place. So from the slain animals of Genesis, whose skins were used to cover Adam and Eve, to the slain lamb of Revelation, who is worshipped in glory and majesty, the cross is everything. Now, as we continue moving toward the cross here in Matthew 26, we're seeing the preparation for Christ's death. Last week, we saw the preparation of God's design, His timetable. He said in two days, uh, the crucifixion or Christ's death is going to take place on the Passover. 
Then we saw the clandestine scheming plans of the religious leaders as they tried to find a way to trap Jesus uh, away from the crowd quietly and try to do away with him, try to kill him. That, that was the, in their minds. We also saw how God used Mary, the sister of Martha, um, to prepare him for burial as she anointed his body with that uh, beautiful perfume, an extravagant, loving worship of the Lord. And then we also noted the preparation uh, Judas Iscariot made as he accepted 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, to betray Jesus. Now, those four areas of preparation, those elements of preparation involved others, other than Christ himself. And as we come to verse 17 here in our passage today, we begin to uh, begin the section where Christ himself prepares for his own death. It's his own preparation here. We're going to be seeing several different ways that he prepares for his death. First of all, um, in experiencing the final Passover, which we're going to be talking about this morning. Then in establishing the Lord's Supper. Then in the helping of weak disciples. And finally, his praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this morning, we want to look at the final Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And we find that in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 26, if you want to open to that, uh, we'll see why the timing of the Passover and his death was so significant. So Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read just three verses, 17, 18, and 19. It says, On the day of the festival of unleavened bread, on the first day of the festival, excuse me, of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed him and prepared the Passover. Now, that sounds very straightforward. Not a whole lot of profound stuff going on there, right? Just a chain of events. But as we've been finding, as we've been going through Matthew, I'm always amazed at the details, at the significance, and the deep meaning as we dig deeper into the verses. Now remember, Jesus had been celebrating the Passover for the past 32 years. Uh, he's been celebrating with his parents, and his, or and later on just his mom probably. Uh, as he was growing up, in the last couple of years, he celebrated with his disciples. As a Jew, that's that's what you did. Uh, that, that was the event. That was one of the main events to participate, and you didn't really have a choice. But this one was different. Jesus knew that this was his last Passover, and this was going to be the most important of his lifetime, and he really wanted to celebrate it well. In fact, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, uh, the transliteration of the Greek, uh, it would read, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. The words of, is epithemia, epithemio, desire upon desire, indicating intense desire to do something. And that's what Jesus was feeling. This was very important to him, and we'll see why it's so important as we go along. Now, 
There are a slew of festivals on the Jewish calendar. Uh, we've heard many of them. There's a Feast of Weeks to celebrate God's provision um, in the harvest time. There's also the Feast of Tabernacles to commemorate their wandering in the wilderness and the fact that they, they used to uh, live in tents as, as they wandered and all of God's provision for them. There's also a feast called the Day of Atonement, and this, this highlighted the deliverance of Israel. Um, excuse me, it highlighted the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. This was be done once a year by, by the, uh, the, 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 the high priest. In, in order to atone for the sins of the nation for the whole year, one, one time a year. That was the Day of Atonement. There's also the Feast of Dedication. Uh, we know that as Hanukkah. That's, we often hear that around Christmas time as well. And that commemorates the deliverance of Israel under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus in the time between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And then there's a Feast of Trumpets, which is a festival for the new year. But the greatest of all the celebrations is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both of which is mentioned here in verse 17. This was an eight-day festival. started with the Passover and then went into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, the, the Both of them were combined, and it, it ended up being an eight-day celebration. Now, the Passover, of course, celebrated God's deliverance of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, where they had been enslaved for 400 years. And as you remember, God began to send the plagues upon the Egyptians, trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go. Uh, The final plague, of course, was that uh, he sent a death angel, and all the firstborn would be killed in Egypt. And God then told his people, if you will kill a lamb... It had to be spotless. We read about that in our passage in Exodus uh, as we began this morning. And put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and across the top of the doors. Uh, when the angel of death came um, to, to slay all the firstborn of Egypt, when he sees that blood on your, on your door, he would pass over. That's why it's called the Passover. The, the, the angel passed over their house and spared the life of the firstborn. So the Passover was commemorating the sacrificial lamb whose blood caused them to escape the judgment of God. And it was a symbol of God's ultimate Passover lamb whose blood would save people from God's final judgment for all of eternity. And so God instituted back in Exodus chapter 12 the early feast of the Passover so they would remember that salvation that he provided for them by the blood of the Lamb, it was a meal they'd they'd have together, and it was held the night before the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In my study, I, I came across a fascinating detail that is not going to be picked up if you're just reading through this the scripture narratives. And that is that the lamb for the Passover meal was to be selected on the 10th of the month of Nisan. You say, yeah, so big deal. The month of Nisan is one of the months of the Jewish calendars. And we've, we've looked at this final week. And we know that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on Monday. Okay, they're on Thursday right now in our, in our passage there in chapter 26. But when they came into Jerusalem, it was on Monday. Monday was the 10th of Nisan in the year 33 A.D., the year that Jesus died. 
And that means that the Monday on the 10th was the day in which everyone in the city of Jerusalem was selecting their Passover lamb. And it was that Monday on the 10th of Nisan that God chose his Passover lamb as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Isn't that something? When you read Scripture, look for the details. You know, for me, God becomes bigger and bigger as I look at the finer and finer details. If God is so concerned about all those little details of life, I know that he knows all the details of my life if I would just trust him and allow him to work in it. You remember Jesus talked about this back in Matthew chapter 6. When he says, why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They, they don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, if he takes care of all the details, of the, all the grass and the flowers that are outside, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know, we often look for the big and the spectacular, don't we? And that's what Elijah expected when God told him that he was going to speak to him. Back there in 1 Kings chapter 19, the Lord says to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And I can think, oh, wow, okay, that's it's got to be huge. And he says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. It's got to be God, right? But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, (laughs) he knew. He pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. It's often in those details It's in the quiet, gentle whisper. Be still. Know that I'm God. Well, Jesus arrived in the city on the 10th of Nisan that Monday. And his arriving them was his offering of himself as that sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. So about 250,000 lambs had been chosen on that day to be slaughtered. And we're going to see in a moment that they were slaughtered within a two-hour period of time. (laughs) Can you imagine that? And they say that it was like a river of blood running out the back of the temple and down the slope of the hill into the Kidron Valley that that filled up the stream and ran red with blood right down into Bethlehem. 250,000 lambs all being killed. So it was a dramatic time of sacrifice to, to depict the necessity of death and sacrifice of the innocent for the atoning of the sin of the guilty. Had to be an amazing scene. So here were all these thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs being slaughtered for millions of people, and all of them combined couldn't take away one sin. And that's the message of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? If you look at Hebrews and read through Hebrews and what all the lambs and the goats and the bulls could never do, Jesus Christ, in one sacrifice of Himself, did forever. He did it forever. 
God had instituted all of this way back in Exodus chapter 12 when he put the feast of Passover in place. Unleavened bread uh, is also significant, the the feast of unleavened bread. Um, Unleavened bread, of course, is bread that doesn't have yeast in it. Uh, It doesn't rise, it's, it's flat. And we've mentioned this before, but the Hebrew women would, would usually make, make their bread uh, that, that would rise. And they'd, before they baked it, they would take a small lump from the dough and set it aside and allow that to ferment. And when they made their next batch of dough, they would take that fermented uh, piece of dough from the previous batch, mix it in there, and that would make that whole batch rise. And if they didn't bring that starter lump over, the bread wouldn't rise and it would be unleavened bread without yeast. So when they came out of Egypt, God said to them, take no leavened bread with you. Why? Because leaven represented influence. It permeates. And he's saying, in effect, I don't want you taking a piece of your Egyptian life and implanting it into your new life. You're being delivered from all of that, and I want to start a new people in a new land. You don't need any of that past life. You don't need to be influenced by that any longer. Get rid of it. And that's what God does in our life when we trust Him, isn't it? He transforms us and makes us a new creation with a new life, life of Christ in in us. We are to put away our old life, our old habits, our old desires. The Apostle Paul says that we are to die to sin, no longer being ruled by it, no longer having the influence of that sinful nature in our lives. And the unleavened bread became a symbol then for cutting themselves off from their worldly past. So we come to verse 17, and it tells us, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, listen carefully. I'm going to give you a bunch of details, but, but, but hang in there. It's, it's, it becomes fascinating, and the details make the whole portrait of that, that last week so amazing and, and beautiful. In the year Jesus died, Passover fell on Friday. We know that because the text tells us that Passover was on a date. Uh, The date is the 14th of Nisan, always celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. From year to year, it would fall on a different day, kind of like Christmas and, and, and New Year's. The date remains the same, but the day will change as the calendar changes. So it happened that in the year Jesus was crucified, the Passover fell on Friday. Now, besides looking at the calendar of that year, Mark tells us in his account, in Mark chapter 15, it was preparation day, that is, he explains, the day before the Sabbath. And we know the Sabbath is Saturday, so that this had to be on Friday. And the re- reason they called it the day of preparation is because they had to prepare for the Sabbath. You couldn't do a slew of things on the Sabbath, including uh, cooking your meals. So they had a lot of extra preparation on the Friday before Sabbath. This always happened every Friday. The day of preparation always on, on Friday. But this particular year, Passover also fell on Friday. So there was an extra amount of preparation that had to be done on that Friday. Now, 
In our passage, it's Thursday morning, and it's time to to prepare the Passover meal. They already have their lamb. That was picked up probably on Monday along with everybody else. But there are a lot of other things to prepare for the Passover. They had to prepare the unleavened bread. They had to get a bowl of salt water ready. They would put a bowl of salt water out on the table to commemorate um, the, the, the fact or, or to, to remember the tears that they suffered through slavery and also reminded them of the Red Sea, the Red Sea being salt water uh, a sea there. Um, so that was parted by the Lord, and He delivered them there. They had to get bitter herbs like horseradish and chicory and something called whorehound and endive and other things. They would put together to, to mix it, and they would have some hyssop um, mixed in there to, as well to remind them of the bitterness of their time in Egypt. And that hyssop that they brought in um, was what they had used to put the blood on the the, uh, the door, door frames and the uh, lentils. Then they made this other kind of uh, gooey paste uh, made out of apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts, kind of all crushed together and smashed together into a thick sauce they called cheroset. And that's what they would dip their unleavened bread in as part of that final meal. And that was a symbol of the brick-making back in Egypt that uh, they had to do while they were enslaved there. And the clay and the mud that they had to mix together. And then they'd put some sticks of cinnamon in there to represent the straw that they had to mix in with the clay and the mud as they made those bricks. So everything had symbolism. And then there were four cups of wine for that meal. And the four cups of wine were to remind them of the covenant God back in Exodus chapter 6 made with them. He said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of uh, the Egyptians. Secondly, I will rid you of their bondage. Thirdly, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Fourthly, I will be your God. That was his covenant with them. Four things. And so they commemorated that with four cups of wine during the Passover, uh, Passover dinner. So, but all these had to be prepared, be prepared ahead of time. And then on top of all that, they had to make sure the lamb was, that, that they had purchased on Monday was slain within that two-hour interval between 3 and 5 in the afternoon. Because if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, when God instituted the Passover, He says there, in the translated from Hebrew, that it was done between the two evenings. I thought we only had one evening. But there were apparently there, there were two evenings. The Jews had an early evening at three and a late evening that started at five. So the lambs, all the lambs had to be slain between the two evenings, between three and five in the afternoon. Now, the disciples know they have to get all this stuff done and ready for the evening meal. And that's why they asked Jesus, where do you want us to make preparations? We'll get everything together. We'll prepare. Just, just tell us where you want this done. Now, you remember as, as they came into Jerusalem, they stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Now, they couldn't go back to Bethany to celebrate this Passover, which would be the easy thing to do, because the law said that they had to do it within the city limits of Jerusalem. 
So all the people that were staying outside of the city during this whole festival of time, they all had to cram into the city limits to be able to celebrate this Passover dinner. Uh, so everybody was looking for a place. So that was a problem for the disciples. With two and a half million people looking for a place, milling all over the place, trying to find rooms. So they turned to Jesus. Now that's one thing they did right. <laughs> they turned to Jesus. So often we forget to turn to Jesus, don't we? We plan, we Google, we search, trying to make stuff happen. And so often we forget Jesus. We should go to Jesus first. So they ask him, and listen to his answer in verse 18. This is, fine. Uh, this is fascinating. He says, so, so where do you want, want us to go? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man. Who says that, right? A certain man? He used the Greek word dina, not a proper noun. Dina, which interestingly enough is the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament. It's a nondescript term that's used when you want to be indefinite. There's a, there's a reason. It's kind of like saying, I want you to go and see a guy. It's not that Jesus didn't know who this guy was. It's not that Jesus forgot his name. But there was a reason why he didn't name him. Remember, there's about two million people crammed into the city. And Jesus says, I want you to go see this guy and tell him. The teacher says, my, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, how are they going to know who this guy is? Well, fortunately, Mark, in his gospel writing, fills in the gap for us. And there Jesus says, you are to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water. Oh, well, that, that clears that up, right? It's so easy now. A guy carrying water. Well, you need to ask yourself, how common is that? Or how common was that? Who carried water? In that culture and in that time, women did. You rarely, if ever, saw a man carrying a pitcher of water. It would have been very, very unusual. And Mark goes on to explain that Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a, Mary, a, a, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Isn't that interesting? He will meet you. Follow him, he said. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, finished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Sounds like some, something had already been, being, uh, been arranged. We also know from Luke's account in chapter 12 that it was Peter and John that Jesus sent. The other ten disciples stayed with him. Now, is that significant? Well, yes, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that only two people, according to the law, only two people were allowed to accompany the lamb to sacrifice. And there's a pretty obvious reason for that. And it was Peter and John that were chosen. If, only, if there's only a two-hour period of time to sacrifice those thousands of lambs, if you had a whole family of five, eight, ten people wanting to see what was going on, it would be bedlam. There would be no way they could get it all done. So they said only two people could accompany the lamb. 
I think another reason that Peter and John were chosen was because they were the closest to Jesus. He trusts them. He knows that they will get it done. But why all the secrecy? Why all the secrecy? Why doesn't Jesus just say, you know, you, you remember so-and-so. He's our friend. He's, he's a follower and a disciple. Uh, you know where his house is? Over on 2nd Street, right across from the First, uh, first National Bank of Jerusalem. Um, that's where we're going to have supper. He could have said that. Why didn't he? And I think there's one simple reason. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Remember what we looked at last week, verse 16? It says, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Wouldn't that have been perfect? The information of that location would have been perfect for Judas to run then to the religious leaders and tell, tell them exactly where Jesus, he's going to be up in that room, he's going to be trapped in that room, only his disciples there, all the other people are out there preparing their Passover, nobody's going to be paying attention, get him there. Jesus knew that, and he wasn't about to let Judas know. In fact, Peter and John never came back during the day. They continued to be about the preparation, so Judas was never able to find out where they were going to be. He had to go along with the rest of the disciples and Jesus in the evening to that room, and he had no opportunity to snitch. Why? Because it was not yet time. God has a timetable. It was close, but not yet. You see, it was essential for Jesus to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Why? Because he wanted to use that as an example of his own death and to transform the celebration of the Passover into the Last Supper of Jesus, into the table of communion that we celebrate on the first, uh, first Sunday of the month. Paul tells us that we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That was a moment of change between the Passover to the Lord's Supper that we are to remember and proclaim. We no longer look back to celebrate the Passover because something much greater has taken place. We celebrate the Lord's death, not just the death of some animals. Jesus had to change that, and he did that in the upper room, which we're going to be looking at a little bit more next week. So Peter and John were to tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, the owner must have been one of Jesus' followers, not one of the twelve, but one of the many followers of Jesus uh, over, the, over at least the past year, maybe longer. Uh, maybe Jesus had already made arrangements with him at some point. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us, and it doesn't really matter. Jesus just said to them, the teacher says, he'll know what, what you're talking, who you're talking about. And tell him, my appointed time is near. And he's going to understand that as well. Jesus, of course, is referring to his crucifixion that is coming up within two days, or the next day, actually. Also tell him, Jesus said, I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your home. That's what they call a prophetic present tense verb form, which makes it an obligation. I am obligated to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. That's part of that divine timetable that God has set out. And Mark tells us that the man had a large second, second floor, a large room, spacious, furnished, and ready to be used. It was already set up, which shows planning ahead of time. Verse 19 says, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, 
and prepared the Passover. Here's a question. What do you see the disciples doing here in this process? When they didn't know where to go, what room to find, where even to start looking, what did the disciples do? They went to Jesus. They went to Jesus and asked the very first thing that they did. They didn't get together as a committee of 12 to discuss how it was going to be done. Remember when, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, they got together and they were talking about how in the world we're we going to feed. So that they were discussing that among themselves. Here they didn't do that. They didn't look for all the vacant signs that may have been hanging out in different homes. They didn't get on Google or MapQuest. The first thing they did was go to Jesus. Why? Two reasons. One, they didn't know where and probably assumed that there it was impossible because of all the people. But I think more importantly, they had learned that Jesus was the one to make the impossible possible. They had seen that over and over again. They had spent time with Jesus almost 24-7 for three years. That's a lot of time. How much time do we spend with Jesus? If you think of our day and our evenings and our nights, how much time do we focus on spending with Him? The disciples walked with Him. They talked with Him. They listened to Him. They watched Him. They learned from Him. You remember the story of Mary and Martha back in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus visited their home. And it says there, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha, Martha was distracted. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. It's so easy to become distracted in doing. In our spiritual growth class, Sunday mornings, uh, a book called Experiencing God, the author Henry Blackaby writes this, Both individuals and churches are often more interested in what God wants them to do than in what He wants them to be. Being the kind of people who please God, he says, is far more important than doing something for Him. The way we can be the kind of people who please God is by spending time with Him, talking with Him, listening to Him, reading His Word, asking the Holy Spirit to open His Word to us, trusting Him, learning to trust Him. And that's what Peter and John had been doing for three years. They had been learning. And that's why he told the two of them, go and get things ready. Then they obeyed. They went to Jesus, got instructions, then they obeyed. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. They did as he said. They didn't question him. They said, oh, come on, Jesus, tell us who it is. They didn't ask for more details. See, they had gotten to know Jesus really well. Now, they weren't all there yet. We're going to be seeing how the disciples deserted him uh, that same night and how, how Peter ended up denying him as well. But they were learning to trust him and to be obedient no matter how crazy it may have sounded. Blackaby, in, in that same book, writes, uh, makes another statement about a church seeking God's will. He says, A church will face a crisis of belief 
when God invites it to become involved in a work only He can accomplish. You see, the crisis comes when we doubt, when we question. The crisis comes when we reason that we don't have enough money, we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough energy. And God says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? That's the crisis point. That's the decision point. It's a yes or no answer. And so the disciples went to Jesus first and asked him, what do you want? Then they obeyed. They did what he said to the letter. And amazingly, they found everything exactly how Jesus had laid it out for them. And then they put in the human effort to prepare the meal, to make it happen, to pull it all together, all the things that had to be done. They, they did all that. They did what was necessary. Peter and John worked hard at it, but not before having gone to Jesus first. When we do something for the Lord, it should be done well because it's for Him. Scripture tells us, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might. Paul says in Colossians 3, Whenever, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. That's what our attitude ought to be. And the Lord will give us that strength as we step out and obey Him. It's a great lesson for us. First, we need to be the kind of people that please God. Then we need to learn to step out in faith and do whatever He asks us. You know, part of being the kind of people who please God is understanding who God is. Understanding how big God is. How much in control He is. How much He loves us. How how big is your God? You know, there's a horrible expression out there that says, the devil is in the details. (laughs) No, God is in the details. From the beginning of time, God already knew that He was going to give up His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a perfect Lamb who would shed His blood for the, for the forgiveness of our sins. And about 1,500 years before Christ died, God knew that the Passover event in Egypt was a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. It's amazing to see how God arranged history and orchestrated man's minds and all man's schemings so that his son would be sacrificed at precisely the right moment, fulfilling every detail of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. You know, earlier I said God becomes bigger and bigger as I find the smaller and smaller details. I've got to know and understand the majesty of God. I've got to know Him as the all-knowing God, as the all-powerful God, as the all-present God, to be able to withstand the onslaught of the world's doubt that that keeps trying to get in. And Satan continues to ask that same question from Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? And when the seed of doubt when the seeds are, are sown in our minds and we get, begin to contemplate them, they then begin to take root in our hearts and our God begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm reading a book by A.W. Tozer entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And in chapter 2 he writes this, 
so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step for any church, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. He goes on to say, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it once more is worthy of him and worthy of her, the church. So our Lord, in perfect harmony with the divine unfolding plan of God, controls everything, every single thing in his own sequence of events leading to the cross. This is the majestic, glorious, defining, living Son of God. This is our Savior. And in the process, He loses nothing in the midst of His betrayal, in the midst of His murderers. He loses no dignity. He maintains the majesty of His person by being in control of every single thing that takes place. Well, that's just the beginning. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at that Passover and see how Jesus transforms it and he ends, he ends the Passover and he transforms it into the Lord's Supper and communion. And we'll be taking a look at that. Father, this morning, we thank you for the control, the amazing control, the amazing order that you have your plan will not be changed. We see stuff that's happening in this world, and we're trying to think, what in the world is going on? There's this, it seems like bedlam. There's, there's little understanding. That, uh, there's so much confusion that's out there. Uh, God, what, what, what's going on? Did you forget us? No. You have not forgotten. You are working out your plan. We, with our puny little minds... Any little understanding that we have cannot grasp the plans that you have. So, Father, as we look at passages like this this morning, I pray that our faith in you, our trust in you, our our understanding that you are in control, that you're going to work everything out according to your timetable and exactly the time that you want it done, you are going to do that, and we are to trust you. And while you're working out, you have given us a responsibility. You have given us responsibility to draw closer to you, to build our relationship closer uh, with you, and to reach out and touch people that are out, uh, that don't know Jesus Christ. Share with them the love of Jesus so that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can draw them to yourself. And Father, if there is anyone that may be participating in our service this morning or later on this week as, as, a, uh, as a click into our service. If there's one that has not made that decision for Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would speak to them in a powerful way. I pray that your name would be glorified, that they would come to you and say, Lord, I, I, I realize that I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sin. I believe that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you are Lord. And I give my life to you. And you will be there with the arms wide open, welcoming them into your family. 
So, Father, work in us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.